It's happened again. There was a phenomenon at the first service that I referred to, and it's happened again. Presbyterian choir swaying. It was definite, <laughs> definite swaying going on there. Thank you very much again. Well, we're reading from the Word of God this morning in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, and reading from verse 26. Previous section has to do with worship. It's this whole section, really beginning at verse 19, is the kind of practical outworking of the doctrine the teaching that he's been give, the author has been giving in the first part of the book. And then verse 26 is a different subject. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there, is no long, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? and has outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God, we pray for hearts, minds, wills to be supple, malleable by the Holy Spirit as we hear this solemn word in Jesus' name. Amen. I read this week an article by the president of Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, Dr. Kruger, in which the title was The Power of deconversion stories, how Jen Hatmaker is trying to change minds about the Bible. And uh, that's the, that was the title. Going into the, the, the essay, he says this, deconversion stories are designed to convince Christians that their outdated, naive beliefs are no longer relevant. Christianity has never had a shortage of people who were once in the fold and then left, hoping to take with them as many people as possible. Modern examples of this, whose deconversion stories are being published all over the place, are well known. Bart Ehrman and the Jesus Seminar, Rob Bell, Pete Enns, and for a UK audience, someone like Steve Chalk. In their different ways, these folks have all had, to use Enz's words, an alpha moment where the Bible jars 
with their intellectual integrity, with their personal sensitivities, or with their cultural proclivities. For these folks, when that happens, the Bible is what loses. And you can look up and you can listen to Pete Enzi's Alpha Moments online, or you can read Steve Chalk's book, The Lost Message of Jesus. <clears throat> this little passage in Hebrews is telling us that the Bible takes deconversion with terrifying seriousness. To step out of the fold of Christ is to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, the technical word for this is apostasy. And in this passage, we see apostasy in the bud, apostasy in the fruit, and apostasy in the end. First of all, apostasy in its bud. You see, that word for, right at the very beginning there of verse 26, shows you that there is a flow of argument from the preceding passage. The preceding passage is talking about worship, the new way of worship that there is for people who are in Christ. It's a very happy and, and wonderful passage that encourages us to draw near with a true heart in full assurance with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. It tells us to hold fast our confidence, our confession to the end without wavering. It tells us to gather together, to assemble together as God's church, meeting with one another and encouraging one another in our confession and in our progress and in our worship. But in the midst of all of that, there's a little sentence, there's a, there's a reference right at the very end in verse 25. Because he says there, to the church, that is to us, not neglecting to meet together as some are in the habit of doing. Now, this is more than a passing remark. Some were giving up on church. Some were slipping back into Judaism, perhaps. Some were having alternative Bible studies or they were pursuing some moral or spiritual agenda other than that discovered in Holy Scripture. Whatever the reason, they were disregarding divine services. They were deserting the communion of the saints. And that word for is telling you that that is where apostasy often begins. We kind of stop going to church because we dislike the teaching. It's too strong for us, too hard for us, too mainline for us. We, we, we can't take it. We, we don't want it. We, we'd rather something else was being said. We're embarrassed. We're embarrassed about Christian people. We really don't want to be seen with them. I mean, there's all kinds of eccentricities among Christian people. I don't have any my, myself that I'm aware of, but, but we all have eccentricities. We're not all perfect. We are imperfect people. We sin. Sometimes we just 
are ignorant. We don't know the right things to do and so on. But above all, we believe these supernatural realities. And it's possible for you to get into a situation where you're embarrassed to be associated with Christian people. Perhaps you react to Christian morality. Just think for a moment what public worship involves. It involves and represents the visible presence of Christ in the community of believers. Believers are here, that means Christ is here. It is, it is the arena in which believing people publicly confess and profess their hope in Christ. We do it when we recite our creed. We do it when we sing our hymns. We do it as we read the Bible, as we've done together earlier as we read that psalm. The church gathered is the place where the ordinary means of grace are served up for us. The preaching of the Word of God, the prayers of the people, and the sacraments. These means by which Christ impresses His presence on His people, speaks from His throne to His church. But there is that in our hearts that resists hearing from Christ. These people were neglecting. The word actually neglect is a very weak translation. It means to utterly forsake or abandon. You find the same word used by the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4 when he talks about a man, Demas, whom he has commended earlier in Demas's life. But now he says about Demas, Demas has forsaken me having loved this present world. Here is a man who was with the apostle, involved in Christian work, a leader in the church, but he has abandoned that. He has forsaken that because of his love for this present world. To get an idea of what to forsake means, in its positive use, for example, here in Hebrews, God says to his people, I will never leave you or forsake you. Back in chapter, in chapter 10, there are those verses just preceding. One of the main features I pointed out of Christians when they gather is that they should hold fast the confession of our hope. These people were beginning to wobble, wobble in their confession of their hope. They are beginning to rethink what they believe. They are wondering whether they really believe what they believe. And they are failing now to come and attend with God's people. They're easing off. They're pulling back. They're finding their own space. And we find examples of this in the New Testament. In the life of Jesus himself in John chapter 6, 
At that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Maybe you know people like that. You used to walk with Jesus, but they went back and they no longer walk with Jesus or his people. Or the language of uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, when John speaks of those who went out from us, but they were not of us. In fact, their going out demonstrated that although they had once stood with us, taught what we teach, sang what we sing, affirmed what we affirm together, the root of the matter was not in them. And the fault line began to be perceptible when they pulled away from the public confession of their hope in Christ. Apostasy in the bud. Then we come to verse 26, and we see apostasy in its fruit. They were abandoning the Christian church. That's apostasy in the bud. But now they've gone further. Here is the fruit captured by the very first word in the Greek. It's this word deliberately or defiantly or willfully. Willfully. If we go on sinning willfully, defiantly, after receiving the knowledge of the truth. It's a defiant sin that's in view. Not just any sin. We all sin. We all sin deliberately at times. That's why deliberately is not a good translation of the word that's used there. Because some of us sin deliberately, don't we, from time to time, but we're encouraged to come back and confess those sins to God Ones we've done unconsciously, ones we've done done deliberately, and there is pardon for us. This is not that. This is not that, as we shall see. Let me give you an illustration of what is going on here. Both of these are from First Things, the magazine. The Right Reverend Dr. Derek Browning, a minister of the Presbyterian Church in Scotland, in his Christmas message to his disappearing flock, confessed that, quote, in his darker moments, he sometimes wondered whether, quote, the world would have been a better place without Jesus, there would be no Christianity, no crusades, no Spanish Inquisition. I would say that was a great Christmas message for or Father Frido Olivero of the Church of San Rocco di Torino in the Archdiocese of Turin. He substituted an Italian pop religious tune, the Dolce Sentieri, for the creed, saying this to his people, I do not say the creed because I do not believe the creed. It was something I never understood and that I cannot accept. Now, both these illustrations, one from a minister and one from a priest, are illustrations of people who have committed apostasy. 
And the same moves that are made so publicly from the pulpit and the altar can be made quietly in the heart of anyone who slowly but steadily detaches themselves from a heart and mind commitment to the divine revelation to be found in Holy Scripture. Look at the text again. What is the issue here? The issue here is the issue of truth. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, where does the emphasis lie here? We have received the knowledge of the truth. What truth is this? It is Christian truth. It is revealed truth. It is truth as opposed to error and evil. This is divine truth. It is saving truth. It is gospel truth. Jesus says, thy word is truth. Jesus says, <clears throat> Jesus says that he himself is the way, the truth, and the life. This is the truth that leads you to Jesus, that leads you to life. The ultimate truth, the final truth. These people have disregarded the truth. They are now enemies of the truth. Look at verse 27. These people are called adversaries. They are enemies of the truth. It's not just that they don't believe it anymore. They are actively opposed to the truth of God. Look at verse 29. It's more specific. They have trampled underfoot the Son of God. They have profaned the blood of the covenant. They have outraged the Holy Spirit. This is the sin against the Holy Ghost. This is the sin that leads to death that you find about in the Bible. This is deliberately sinning, not sinning in general, but apostasy from the faith that is as a body of truth that is believed and confessed by the church. And it's deliberateness, del deliberateness in being done against better knowledge. These people know better. So here's a person who has been exposed to the truth of the gospel. They've understood what they've heard. They've acknowledged it to be true. They've conceived it in their mind. They've consented to it with their will. They've embraced it with their heart. They have a knowledge of the truth of the gospel. That's a great thing. The gospel is a ministration of the Spirit, the Bible says. It is a mystery that no eye has seen or ear has heard or heart has conceived. It is supernaturally revealed truth. In the ages that were not in the past, other ages, this was not made known to people, writes Paul to the Ephesians, but now it has been revealed by the holy apostles. These people know the truth. They know the truth. They may teach in seminaries. They may teach the truth for a while. They may be in pulpits and teach the truth for a while. Here is the, point, here is the picture of one who first leaves on learning, being in fellowship with those who hold to the truth. And as they've gone on, for it's a permanent movement here, if we go on sinning deliberately, this is an ongoing movement, they move away from 
the truth. I want to pause there just to change gears for a second. Just to be clear, we're not talking about someone under some external pressure who for a moment denies the faith. In the, in the early church, there was a controversy called the Novation Controversy. And it was over those people who during the Roman assaults on Christianity, you remember that people were regularly hauled off to the circus and thrown to lions or thrown down and made to compete with gladiators who, who slew them, or they were, they were drowned in or they were covered with oil and affixed to the pillars of the Colosseum and set afire. Uh, Christians were the very first form of uh, lighting for amphitheaters at night under the Roman, under Roman rule. And you can imagine. You can imagine the Roman soldiers coming to your village. You can imagine them selecting the Christian family and putting your children and your wife out there and, and you being challenged. Swear that Caesar is Lord and deny the Christ. Not many of us in this room we could know for absolute certainty what we would do. And some were faithful and died as martyrs. Some yielded. In their hearts and minds they were thinking something else, but they said what they were asked to say. And after that period of persecution was over and everything was going back to normal again, the Novatians, they took a very hard line. They wanted these people who had, who had confessed that Caesar was Lord to be put out of the churches and, and to be dealt with harshly by the church. Well, that's not what we're talking about here. These people are not making a decision under pressure. This is not that that is going on here. Nor is it when, when a believer is suddenly taken by surprise by a temptation and they fall. This is not that. This is not when the child of God goes through a period of confusion or doubt or questioning. This is not when the child of God perhaps find themselves under, perhaps they're suffering from, from a, a serious medical depress, depressive illness and they start questioning their Christian convictions. Under those circumstances, see your doctor and then read the Bible in that order. This is not someone who simply has doubts about some aspects of the Christian message or asks difficult questions about the Christian message. This is not that. These people are people who with their eyes wide open, with deliberate intent, as a matter of free choice, of their own accord, without coercion, conceive, consent, and embrace what the Bible calls an evil heart of unbelief. They turn from the living and true God. They embrace something else, atheism, agnosticism, some other kind of religious influence perhaps, maybe even a kind of distorted form of Christianity made to measure to suit their intellectual or personal imagination. You imagine a phrase I've heard many people say from time to time, 
when they say to me, well, that's what you believe. I like to think of God as. And you fill in what you'd like to think of God as. These are those people. Apostasy and its fruit. A deliberate rejection of the gospel, of the message, of the truth. So we've seen it in the bud, we've seen it in the fruit, we now see it in the end. There are two great warning passages. There are several in Hebrews, but two particularly that relate to one another. The first one is in chapter 6. We, we studied it some time ago. I'll read you a bit of it. It is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. That first warning addresses the psychological effects of making a move such as we are thinking of today. The psychological effects are that these people never want to repent, ever want to repent, never want to be renewed to that fellowship they had, never come to a place where they are sorry for the move that they've made out of the faith. The psychological implications for those people are, in a sense, that they wall themselves in to the decision they have freely made and do not want to shift from that position. This second one, the one we're looking at, is pointing us to the soteriological effects of apostasy. Soteriological, you can use that at lunchtime. It comes from the word soter, which is the word for salvation. So this is the saving effects. What, what, is the, what is the outcome in terms of our salvation? It answers the question, what are the eternal implications of rejecting Christ, of turning from the truth of Christianity? And the answer is, they are frankly terrifying. Look at them. There is or there remains no longer a sacrifice for sins. Right at the heart of this book of Hebrews, the author has been talking about Christ as the great sacrifice once and for all time for sins. He obeys on behalf of His people. He dies on behalf of His people. He does this for His people so that His people can have boldness and confidence to come to God knowing that the sin issue has been resolved once and for all on the cross by Jesus. But if you reject Jesus, if you reject the message of Jesus, if you reject Christianity born of Jesus, if you reject the truth as it is in Jesus, there is no sacrifice for sin. No hope of salvation. No way by which you can be right with God. You forfeit any interest in the work of Christ. 
question. I can hear you asking this question, one or two of you. Prescient. How does that leave the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints? The security of the believer? I heard it. Here's the answer. It leaves it intact. It leaves it intact. Because the believer, no matter how doubting they become, no matter how many questions they ask, no matter how many trials they endure, no matter how many times they sin or fall, and then they're restored again, the believer never, ever, ever gets to the point where they do what these people do. Remember what John said, 1 John 2? They went out from us, and now we know that they were not of us. In other words, their, their progression outwards, out of the church, away from the gospel, is the demonstration that they never, ever had the heart of the matter in them. Isn't that amazing? The true believer perseveres to the end. Persevering to the end does not mean that you always have it all together. Persevering to the end does not mean that you never have doubts or that you never go through dark periods of difficult questions. But it does mean that in the end we persevere to the end. You couldn't despair even, well, you couldn't despair even get to a point of utter desperation about your own life without turning away from Christ. But these people, with their eyes wide open, have rejected with their minds and their hearts the truth that is in Jesus. No sacrifice for sin. Instead, what do they have to look forward to? A fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. The writer is saying already the evidence is being accumulated. Already their deconversion stories and their rationalizations of why they have abandoned the faith, those things are being kept and will be brought up on the day of judgment. The one who rejects Christ, who throws away the truth that they knew, have terrifi a terrifying future to look forward to, an eagerness of zeal, a fire to devour the hostile. In the language of Isaiah 26, quoted here, let the fire reserved for your enemies consume them. In verse 28, the author calls to mind an illustration from the Old Testament history. That if under the old covenant you intentionally sinned in certain areas, there was a death sentence. We don't have that anymore, of course. That was to teach us in a very, a very physical way the reality of the danger. Those people died physically, but perhaps not eternally, but they died physically to demonstrate the seriousness sin leads to death. We don't believe it. Read the stories of the Old Testament to get it into your head that God is deadly serious. But with this difference, 
Today, Christ has come. Today, the Holy Spirit has spoken to men and women. He has given us the the Holy Scriptures. They are the Holy Spirit's speech to the church. And the author is saying this, how much more do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? The writer to the Hebrews is very careful about the way in which he designates Jesus. Jesus is the word he uses for his humanity. Christ is the word he uses when he's thinking of the God-man, our mediator and priest. Son is the word he uses when he wants to remind us of who Jesus was before the foundation of the world, before creation itself. He is the eternal Son of God. What What are these people doing by turning away from Jesus? As revealed in Scripture, they are turning their back on, they are treating the Son of God as an insect on the ground to be crushed under their foot. And what about the work of Christ? Jesus is the supreme sacrifice for all time that deals with sin to reconcile us to God. To reject Him is an act of cosmic treason. And they're rejecting the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, who is the one that gives us insight into the Word of God. He's the one that that changes heart. By rejecting the church, they're rejecting the Holy Spirit in the lives of these brothers and sisters in this room here today. You may think ill of us. Let me tell you this. If we were not born again, spirit filled men and women, we'd be a lot worse. We'd be a lot worse. God has been at work in us, getting us to the the position we're at right now. And to reject the church is to reject the Holy Spirit. To reject the truth is to reject the Holy Spirit because He is the Spirit of truth. He has guided us into all truth through the apostles. When someone willfully turns away from Christ, there is nothing we can do for them except pray that their eyes would be opened. They place themselves outside the church, outside the discipline of the church, and they place themselves into the hands of God. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of God. Jesus talked about it, weeping, gnashing of teeth, eternal fire. Jesus talked about it more than anybody else. Now, I ask you this morning, do you struggle with doubt? Do you sometimes blame God for your circumstances? Do you nurse fears in your heart? Are you asking the question this morning, does this apply to me? Well, I have some questions for you. Does it matter? Do you care? Could you bear the thought of an eternity without Christ? I say to you on the authority of the Word of God, if you're even thinking that, You are not one of these people. 
These people never ask those questions. These people never think that way. So consumed are they in their own intellect or their own emotion or their own way of life, it never enters their head to wonder because they've rejected Christ. But if you today come to God yourself and throw yourself, as it were, into His hands, it won't be like their experience because His hands will catch you and He will draw you to Himself. He will welcome you. He will save you. He will guard you forever. Let's pray. Father, we pray that in the solemnity of this moment, with this Scripture before us, sensing that Christianity, our Christian experience of you, is not a game that we play, but a matter of eternal importance. We pray that you would make that to weigh upon us. And we pray for those, Lord, who have deconverted, as it were. We long and hope that there might be those among them who would see the error of their ways, that your Spirit would draw back to you before they go too far. We pray for ourselves, Lord, for each one of us in this room, that you would keep us, Lord, from despair and doubt that would drive us away. We pray that you would guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus for his glory's sake. Amen.